0: I don't mind The guy's dancing with my girl
1: Hello, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. If you guys are curious about what researchers at Western University do, you are at the right show, because we are here to bring Western's research to you guys. All right. I'm Navneet, your host for tonight, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ariel. How's it going, Ariel?
0: Very well, thank you.
1: All right. And for today's show, Well, if you are a parent, you are going to love today's show because we have here with us Nikki Kamkar. How's it going, Nikki?
2: It's going well, thank you.
1: All right. So, um, Nikki, tell us about yourself, your research, what brings you here?
2: Sure. Um, So, I am a third-year PhD student working out of Dr. J. Bruce Morton's lab here at Western University, and um, our lab broadly... Uh, focuses on cognitive development. So we're interested in how children learn and in how children's brains develop. Um, But the work that I'm mostly interested in is how life experiences shape behavior and shape brain development. So I want to look at how early life adversity and how the experiences that children have growing up might shape their decision-making and their brain development.
1: All right, so at what, what age... Of children are you looking at in this research? What what's the age range that you're looking at?
2: Yeah, that's an excellent question. So mm-hmm. um, my research looks at nine to twelve year old children, which is kind of a, a strange age range to look at. The reason is that um, a lot of the work that we do looks at uh, fMRI and Uh, neuroimaging. And for that, children have to be very, very still. By very still, I mean they can't move more than three millimeters. So anything younger than nine years old, they start to move and we start to lose a lot of data. And then 12 was our cutoff because after that, they hit puberty and then their decision making becomes very different than what because there's are like,
1: a lot of other factors that come into once you hit puberty.
2: Yes, like hormonal right. factors make most kids very impulsive in puberty. Would
0: you say maybe puberty is a stressor in of itself? <laughs> Potentially,
2: <laughs> um, yeah. The most thing is that because of hormonal factors, you know, if you look at adolescents most adolescents make risky decisions and they're they're impulsive to begin with. So we wanted to look at what happens mm-hmm. prior to those hormonal effects. So we pick the age range of 9 to 12 for very practical reasons.
1: All right. Yeah. But it's also the age where the brain is most malleable, most susceptible. Would you say that?
2: Um. Well... A lot of the previous work would suggest that, you know, early development is where the brain is most malleable. So probably zero to five years old is where most of the research would say. But uh, our lab is of the mindset that the brain continues to develop and is continuously malleable throughout the entire life, even into adulthood. So our brain is kind of tracking our life experiences Mm -hmm. all the way throughout our lives and adjusting itself to react accordingly.
1: Because I've heard a lot. I mean, I've read a lot of, of mumbo jumbo on the internet that <laughs> your brain stops developing uh, after 25 or 27. Like that's the number where it's all downhill from then, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you don't you don't go you don't believe in that.
2: Yeah. So, um, of course, there are you know specific trajectories mm-hmm. for brain development. You know, so you have like uh, from certain age range there's you know a lot of proliferation in terms of myelination and then once you hit like 1920 the prefrontal cortex has developed and isn't developing as rapidly onwards but that doesn't mean that the brain is no longer sensitive to any environmental input right so the point that i was trying to make is that um, while early childhood might be a sensitive period and that's what it's called in the literature they're called sensitive or critical periods Language, for example, has a critical period where, you know, f- at a certain age range, you have to get some input in terms of linguistic cues or it's mm-hmm. just not going to ever catch up. Um, but that doesn't mean the brain is not tracking life experiences throughout development all the way into adulthood.
1: All right. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. I, yeah. Sure. Cool.
0: A, yeah. So just to clarify a couple things that I, I think people would appreciate to 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 kind of understand really what what's happening in the brain as you were talking about in this malleable period and up to uh, age 25, as Navneet said, but I can't uh, not mention that it's not mumbo jumbo that your um, myelin uh, develops till 25, and then you know that's about the area where it kind of does stop, and, and it doesn't mean your life is downhill mm-hmm. from there, but it does mean that there's a there's a pretty critical point where like that what's occurring when you're when you're young kind of stops at 25 um, but maybe you can tell us because it's related to um, development uh, and the sensory period and what you're imaging with fMRI so what what is it that you're imaging what is this myelin, and how we can learn about it from, from fMRI and what it has to do with development.
2: Sure so um, of course I think one thing that perhaps is causing a little bit of confusion is that there's a difference between anatomical development um so you know you have like you mentioned myelin development you have even gray matter development in terms of the prefrontal cortex it peaks at a certain age and then it stops and it does not develop as rapidly anymore. Um, and in fact, certain re- regions begin to degenerate as you advanced into old age. Substantia nigra for Parkinson's is an example, right? Uh, but that is the structural development of the brain. That does mm-hmm. not mean that the brain is no longer sensitive to environmental cues. So if something happens to you as an adult, I would argue that that doesn't mean you're not at all sensitive to that life event. Um, You know, children might be more sensitive because of that sensitive period that they're in, but it doesn't mean that adults are not at all Mm -hmm. is the only thing that I'm trying to say in terms of saying that, you know, the brain continues to develop. It continues to be sensitive to. Otherwise, you would would not learn as an adult. (laughs) Of course, course, that's true. So, um, but to answer your question, you know, what is fMRI? What are we measuring? Uh, With fMRI, we're measuring the brain's... uh, BOLD response, the blood oxygen level dependent response. So this is, you know, uh, the amount of oxygenated hemoglobin in a given area relative to deoxygenated hemoglobin. So it's basically how much blood is going into an area, how much oxygenated blood is going into an area. Um, It's a measure of brain function. Uh, We're not really using fMRI to measure myelin. Well, we use the same scanner, but we collect a DTI scan. And that isn't even exactly a measure of myelin but it tells us the the uh integrity of myelin fiber tracts right and uh, so these are the connections between different brain areas so myelin is a fatty substance that covers the axons um like the wires of neurons and like an insulation on the wire exactly exactly and it helps um different brain areas communicate with each other more rapidly all right
1: so if you notice like two regions of the brain that are that are densely connected like you find a lot of wires going between them it means they what 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 do you what do you infer from that if they have a lot of wires between them
2: yeah so if they have like you know um a lot of wires or mm-hmm. a good integrity between mm-hmm. the between the two areas then you would assume that they can communicate with each other rapidly there is a good connection between those two areas
1: okay mm-hmm. so in your research do you look at are there any specific regions of the brain that you look at and how they're connected in terms of when you were, you're researching on adversity. Mm -hmm. So are there, well, like are there any specific regions that you're looking at in relation?
2: So, uh, we were interested in how life experiences influence Mm -hmm. learning. So a lot of what we looked at were brain regions that we thought would be, um, involved in helping participants learn. So, um, the type of learning that we use is reinforcement learning. So we were interested in brain regions that are involved in reward. So one of the main regions we looked at was the ventral striatum, which is a region in the middle of the brain that kind of Mm -hmm. uh, responds to learning from positive feedback. Um, And then So one of the findings we found was that kids who experienced more adversity, and the adversity that we looked at, importantly, was not trauma. So it was very mild things that uh, happened to everyone, things like moving around, death of a family pet, uh, changing schools. We found that the kids who had more instances of those adverse life events, uh, they made more impulsive decisions, they learned faster from rewards, and then the reward region of their brain, the ventral striatum, activated more, Uh, to winning 10 points. So it was kind of hypersensitive to rewards. Um, So one of the main regions we were interested in was this Mm -hmm. region that is involved in rewards.
1: The reward region. and
2: One of the reward (laughs) regions, yes.
1: Okay, one of them. There are multiple?
2: Yes. I mean, the reward circuitry is an entire pathway. So it starts at the ventral tegmental area, and it goes to a variety of different regions. And um, you can probably talk about this a little bit. It's it's kind of... um, It's not like every region of the brain just does one thing right Right. it can be involved in multiple different things but one of the things that the Mm -hmm. ventral striatum is involved in is reward-based learning and decision making
1: and these regions like these collective regions they were they were densely connected to any particular to any other part of the brain were they
2: Yeah, so um, one question that we're going to follow up on, Mm -hmm. and this is what I'm working on right now, is whether or not um, connections between this reward region, let's call it a reward region, between the ventral striatum and the prefrontal cortex, uh, which kind of regulates this region, whether or not the wires between these two regions, if kids have thicker or thinner wires, depending on their life experiences. So yeah, they do have connections to each other and uh, they form circuits.
0: Oh, well, I see. That's a that's an interesting follow up. So you see a difference in the striatum, and then you want to see why. Exactly. <laughs> and you imagine, you know, well, what what uh, what moderates activity in the striatum? Well, it's the cortex, the frontal part of your brain that's mm-hmm. uniquely human. So mm-hmm. let's let's go look there. So that's really cool that you followed up with that. Um, just to sort of like uh, go back a little bit uh, on on the. The findings that you because I thought it was really really interesting you said that so a, ch- a child that had gone through uh, adversity but not not sev- super severe adversity, more like your everyday or as you said sort of normative like adversity um, was more the more that they had that sort of everyday adversity, the more likely they were to be responsive to a reward. So kind of like can you give an example of like a circumstance where this kid, A kid on the extreme end of your measure would react compared to the extreme other end.
2: Yeah so in in our specific study those kids on the extreme end when we gave them like pictures and they had to learn from a task that was very difficult because uh, we'd give them like pictures and they had to pick between two images and one image would give them a reward but only like 70% of the time, 30% of the time, it would give them a, a loss. Yeah, <laughs> kind of like a gamble, right? Those kids on the extreme end learned much faster from from getting rewards, from winning the 10 points than, than from getting minus 10 points. So um, when getting feedback from the environment, they just seem to be kind of much faster and much more sensitive when when they're gaining something than when they're losing something. Um, and, you know, I'm a little bit reluctant to say this because we didn't test for this, but I would speculate that these children, if they were in a classroom, for example, or if parents were trying to teach their children something and they knew that this is a child who'd gone through a lot of adversity, um, I would speculate that probably it would be easier to to give them reinforcement or feedback that is positive than negative because they just seem to be more sensitive to the fo- positive feedback.
0: Hmm. But then, but then, but then alter- alternatively, you can interpret it the other way. Then then you, if you find a child who's uh, not gone through any of this adversity, then maybe for them it works better to have a negative reinforcement?
2: So if we looked at, like, the other end of that spectrum, so we had kids who had, you know—we didn't have any kids who, like, never had anything bad happen. So we had kids that had adversity scores of one or two. So this is a kid who has moved around, like, once— And, you know, they had, I don't know, a family pet die. So they have a score of two or something. Right. Mm -hmm. And then we would have kids that had like scores of 30. Right. So when we looked at the kids who had very low scores, so these ones and twos, it's not like they were more sensitive to negative feedback. Uh, Right. They were just less sensitive to positive feedback as compared to the kids who had a lot of adversity.
0: I mean, yeah. I mean, if if the goal is to help them learn in under these different circumstances, for example, when you're a parent and you're trying to teach them to act in a certain way or do things that are productive for their life, um, well, what do you do about those kids that are just not as sensitive? I mean, it yeah. almost feels like it's a benefit to have some adversity right
2: yeah so this is a question that i actually got on my defense um on my master's defense i said are you saying that adversity is a good thing should we be like stressing our children out and um yeah yeah you don't <laughs> need that
0: dog we'll, we'll take that dog away. i know you really like it but <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty harsh <laughs> yeah yeah
2: so that's actually a question that i got on my defense i like what are you talking about and i was saying well you know um it's not like i'm promoting adversity and when i say that you know they're more sensitive to rewards we have to keep in mind um what that reward is because you know a reward can be something like a good grade where yes it's good to be sensitive to getting good grades but a reward can also be cocaine Mm. where it's not good to be sensitive to Uh. right and that's why we see this correlation between adversity and um drug abuse so like if you think about even like a movie right imagine like watching a movie anytime something horrible happens the person loses a job or they're going through a breakup the very next scene you see the person either sitting on their couch eating like a bucket of ice cream or they're at the local bar taking tequila shots mm. and so you know even anecdotally we have this um, evidence that under stress and under adversity people seek rewards kind of like self-soothing right. medication right? that's
1: right
2: so really mm. yeah okay so it makes them more sensitive to rewards but I think we need to pay attention to what that reward is. It's not necessarily a good or bad thing to, to undergo
1: All right, adversity. so there are benefits and drawbacks to having adversity in your life.
2: It can depend, and that's why, mm. I, like, I, I don't know. Again, this is speculation, but you can mm. think about it. You see some people who've been through so much, and they're just, like, all-stars. It's almost like having nothing has really motivated them, and they've become, like, amazingly successful giving people. And then on the other hand, you see some people where, you know, and... One question could be is, how do people cope with stress, right? It could be a difference in coping strategies or coping mechanisms. One person might take a bad situation and turn into a positive, while another might do the opposite. Those aren't questions that I've answered with my research, but these are just, I think, um, interesting concepts that we can think about on a broader level. If if
0: you're willing to to speculate farther, (laughs) (laughs) I could ask a probably not really science question, but more... uh, sociology question? I don't really know, but um, what uh, social factors might be involved here? Because, I mean, I'm kind of biased. I grew up in Canada. I'm used to North American culture, mm-hmm. but what about, like, other cultures? Would this modify that to an extent? Like, so, I mean, <laughs> in a little bit we're asking a nature versus nurture question, but mm-hmm. not exactly. Mm-hmm. Just sort of asking um, what y- your culture and your social environment in your city and your family, uh, how does that might how might that affect uh, sensitivity to adversity and response?
2: I think later. that's such an excellent and fascinating question. And I actually think that that is a research question, or, or should be a research question anyway, because I think there are really. Um speculate, I think there are big differences between collectivist and individualist cultures in terms of how people deal with problems. So um, being in an individualistic culture like North America has a lot of benefits. You know, we're very independent. We don't have our great-grandmother deciding for us who we marry, for example. But there's also some negatives, and it's that people are expected to be extremely independent, and that is also the case in the face of hardship, right? So people kind of, um, I would wonder whether people in North American cultures would be less likely to ask for help in difficult situations relative to, you know, maybe in other cultures where there's a community and it's very collective, um, perhaps they would just deal with adversity differently because the, an entire community of people would kind of get together to deal with the problem perhaps I don't know. These are speculations. Perhaps it would have less yeah, I know. of an effect on or it. No,
0: that's, re- that's really interesting. And mm-hmm. it seems like well-informed speculation. Not, <laughs> not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right.
1: So I just want to build on Ariel's question. And So who are these children that you're working with that you collect data from? Who are these kids?
2: Yeah. So the kids uh, from the study that I've been kind of talking about are um, nine to 12-year-old children in mm-hmm. London, Ontario and surrounding area. So uh, we have a developmental participant pool we call families and you know um these are people who were approached i think when they gave birth to the children in the hospital and like someone asked them would you like to be on our research list and i don't know why but they were kind enough to say yes and so we call them years later you know nine to twelve years later we say you know we're doing a study would you like to participate and then they come so they're just kids in london ontario um but again, as follow-up research, we're looking at kids who, instead of adversity and everyday things that happen, kids who've gone through severe trauma. So we're also working with a group of, um, my lab mate, Mazen al-Baba, started a a program called the Happy Camper Program, where he um, brought Syrian refugee children um, to a summer camp with the goal of preparing them for entering school. And September over the summer, and we collected data from them as well. And those kids experienced um, more severe forms of trauma like war and violence
1: like the scale 30 trauma, yeah, way
2: more than 30. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, off the charts. charts. (laughs) So, um, and then the question is, you know, for those kids, are the patterns of behavior going to be different? And, of course, in the long term, the questions are going to be, okay, well, you know, what are the most adaptive patterns of behavior and what kinds of interventions can we design to potentially help them? That's like 15 years
0: down the road. (laughs) So, I mean, uh, so that sounds like um, both an interesting research endeavor. Yeah, as an extracurricular, it's somehow extracurricular, uh, extracurricular and a research endeavor and a little bit of a humanitarian endeavor yeah, as well, exactly. so that's really nice.
2: Yeah, uh, I should not take credit for that. This is all Mazan al-Baba. He's um, quite amazing, and, you know, he. I remember when he told us, yeah, I want to do a summer camp for Syrian refugees. I kind of looked at him like, you've got to be crazy. Like, you can't do that on your own. You know how much fundraising that's going to take and how much work that's going to take, and he did it. <laughs> that was like, wow. And it was a success, so he did it two years in a row. Uh, The first year was just a camp in Toronto, and then the second year he did in Toronto and in London, so he had two camps going over the summer.
0: So So I can think of another relatively young group that uh, sees adversity fairly often, and that would be uh, college students, (laughs) like ourselves. (laughs) We get normative levels of adversity quite regularly. So um, maybe you could comment on life as a PhD student uh, and uh, what kind of adversity <laughs> or not adversity if you're uh not struggling. But tell us maybe a little bit about what it's like to be a PhD student in the psychology department. Yeah, yeah
2: I think like everything else it's got its pros and cons and I think um no graduate student that is in their third year of their PhD would ever say that they have no problems. <laughs> um so no, definitely definitely I struggle. Um I think like many graduate students motivation is really difficult. You know, you get um, it's hard. You have to break your routine sometimes. Otherwise, you just f- it feels like you're doing the same thing day in and day out and not really getting anywhere. Um, and that can take a toll on mental health. So I think that it's important for graduate students to remain aware. I remember we were actually talking about this today in the lab that when I was in my master's, I was constantly working. And if I took a break, um, I would feel very, very, very guilty. Whereas now I don't let myself feel guilty. If I take a break, I'm like, no, I'm not going to feel guilty. I'm I going to you enjoy might this. Say, yeah.
0: I don't let myself take breaks anymore. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just
2: not necessary anymore. No, nope. oh, but in yeah. terms of
0: superhero, I don't need breaks. Yeah.
1: yeah,
2: but in terms of adversity, yeah, I think that we're chronically stressed, and that's why uh, graduate students, you know, typically uh, need go the to grad the grad club. club. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <sighs> exactly. Right. Um, but it's good. We have a good community here in London, so I think that. Um, and that way, I'm lucky, you know, um, my lab is joined with Dr. Daniel Ansari's lab, and so everyone there is very friendly, and there's a lot of people around, which helps. It's not super isolating, which
1: is good. Sweet. Yeah. yeah I agree. Grad life can get a bit isolated, lonely, mm-hmm. and I work in math, so I can totally relate to that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I yeah. don't know. I mean, um, I know, so being in neuroscience, it's related to psychology there's people in the neuroscience program that are also in psych- in psychology across um we have a lab and yeah, that's kind of really cool especially i moved here from from vancouver and you know when i came here it was it was good to at least have a few people that were like you know part of my team and <laughs> my family immediately you know I, they were my friends off the get-go uh, whereas if i i know that if there are people in other programs that either they're in a they're su- they don't have any other people that are working directly with them um, I mean, I don't know. But actually, I'm interested in, in math. Like, uh do you guys have like a, a lab, so to speak? Like, is there a group that you work with?
1: We don't actually have a lab because we pretty much work on theoretical stuff. So we don't actually have like a communal lab environment. But you more, have a group. Is there? We do have a group. Okay. That's true. And we some of us have group meetings as well, so that works. And we have pizza seminars
0: which pretty is pretty good.
2: Pizza yeah. seminars are necessary, especially yeah. if you do math. Mm. <laughs> kind of yeah. like,
0: wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Pizza seems to fuel a lot of research. I think we're going to get to, a, we're going to break it down in a formula and mm-hmm. just have pizza injections at some point because like that seems to fuel every yeah, grad done student. done with that. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right. Okay. So Nikki, it looks like we are winding down on time over here. Fantastic. So I got one final question for you. Do you have any suggestions for parents like if, like if if I'm a parent and I have an eight-year-old son, are there is there anything that I should be careful? Is there anything I should be aware of of my son's of my son's past that you would suggest?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question, and parents have often asked me that. It's like, okay, well, you're saying that these very normal things like moving around and changing schools are having these long-lasting influences on my kid. What am I going to do? I can't avoid it. Like some of these exactly, things are completely yeah. unavoidable. And I think that's a really important question. I think that's part of the reason why I find this research so fascinating because it's so relatable to everyone. Um, but at the same time, we have to acknowledge that we just simply can't avoid this kind of life change. Um and so I think the important thing is to not view some of these results as so negative. These are adaptive changes. The brain is adapting to its environment. Um, and so if we kind of keep that the perspective more positive, maybe parents won't feel so responsible because these things are not anything a lot of times that they can control. You know, like they've got a better job prospect. They've got to move, right? Um, one thing that you want to do is keep in mind the way that your child is learning and put them in environments that match their learning styles. So if you notice that you have a child, this is the suggestion that I would have, that learns more frequently from positive feedback, put them in environments where they get positive feedback. If you have a child that kind of needs a balance, they need the positive and the negative feedback, then, then do that, right? Um, try to match the learning style of your child with the environment that they're in, would be my suggestion.
1: That's some excellent advice. All right, so if a parent wanted to get in touch with you at a later (laughs) time, how would he or she get in touch with you? Yes. Are you available on social media by any means?
2: Absolutely. So Mm. um, they can find the link to our website at www.cdnl.uw.ca and my contact info is on there as well as my supervisors and other lab mates.
1: All right, sweet. All right, guys, looks like our time's up. And, well, so this has been GradCast. Thanks for listening to us. I'm Navneet, and I was joined by my co-host, Ariel. And we had Nikki with us today, speaking about how adversity relates, about how the correlations in kids between adversity and, and how impulsive they can be at a later stage in their life. So this was a GradCast episode produced by the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. You've been listening to Radio Western, and you can catch us up next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Or you could find our pre-recorded shows on iTunes or Google Play or just about any other site where you find awesome podcasts. You can also get in touch with us at gradcast.ca or if you'd like to be on our radio show or be a part of a committee, just shoot us an email at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us. See you next Tuesday.